Hey listeners, it's Amelia and Lainey. As we wrap up the show for 2019, we thought we'd try things a little different for this episode. So we invited a few friends over for a roundtable discussion. So without further ado, let's get started. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us on our roundtable discussion today. This is episode eight, and we're so happy to have you all here. So just to give everybody an idea of what our listeners are thinking and um, ask some questions, and we can fill in some of the blanks, maybe. Maybe you can help us fill in some blanks. Yeah, I think you guys actually come up with a lot of different questions than we're even thinking of, so it's helpful to hear our feedback or hear your feedback on what we've been talking about and, and where we actually need to dig in a little bit more. So, who wants to start? I'll start. In the last episode, the Charlton guy was, they said that he had an alibi. Mm-hmm. Do you know what his alibi was? That's a great question. Um, we do know that he had an alibi, and we do know that there is documentation around that alibi. But we did, haven't actually dug in to specifically talk to anybody that knew where he was exactly and what he was doing and had that verified. Right. So, yeah, since, I mean, since Blaney and I obviously aren't in Tennessee anymore, um, we're depending on our listeners and anonymous tips and outside sources to, you know, guide us along the way. And um, every once in a while we do receive some documents from an anonymous source, and there was a particular document that was rather compelling and um, we aren't sure if this document proves his case or kind of disproves it, to be honest. Um, but it was a working record that noted that he started work um, on a shift as a pipe fitter. And on one of the higher dates, and, and get this, one of the higher dates had him starting on September 17, 1980. And that was actually the day the girls went missing. And it had him working on September 17, 1980 until April 27, 1981. So it only proves he was employed with this company doesn't really have a location or days off or times on or off, so that's very unclear. It just really has him employed. It doesn't really have him, you know, where he was exactly. It just has him employed, but actually had him starting on that date, so yeah, that was his alibi. It's interesting that it was the same day that the girls went missing. Yeah. That it started. Right, exactly, on the day. And it was handwritten. Yeah, well, that, that's what we received, so whether it came handwritten or not, that's what we received, yeah. so yeah. One question I had was why isn't it why isn't any of the evidence being tested for DNA at the labs like you mentioned in the last episode? Yeah, that's so I love that one. So there, you know, there's very conflicting reports on what's actually still available. So for instance, you know, at least we know that the girls' clothing should still be available, right? So, well, one agent told the family that it's all been ruined from a flood. Um, but then years later, another detective told them that, no, it was preserved because it was sealed in plastic bags, so it should still all still be available, even if it did get wet. There's still DNA on that. Um, so they never seem to get straight answers. They always get, you know, answers from one person, and another detective takes on a case, and they get other answers. Uh, but if there's still evidence left, you know, I would love to start a petition to get it tested at the Parabon Labs, the same labs that we just talked about in the last episode. And I think it's pretty clear that the girls knew their killer, so if the DNA left on their clothing, you know, Parabon could put together a pretty quick sketch, and the DNA would be, you know, we could close this case pretty quick, I think. And literally just today, there was another 40-year-old case um, that was closed. Um, there was a woman named um, Helene Prezinski. Um, she had just started an internship in Colorado, and she was, like, brutally murdered. 
And just today they announced that by using semen that was recovered you know, from her body, and Parabon Labs was able to use a genetic uh, genealogy to identify her suspect. So it was like the same technology they used to catch the Golden State Killer. So literally just today, um, he was caught. So 40 years ago, same year, 1980. Yeah. And what about the blue truck? Why couldn't they ever find the blue truck? That, I mean, that's a, that's a great, great, great question. And something that like we've thought about quite a bit. One, one aspect of the blue truck, um, I know that there's been paint on the tree. They could have tested the paint. We're not exactly sure of what their process was going down, investigating and trying to find the blue truck. Um, they were looking for somebody who was in the blue truck, per the sketch. And I think they were really focused more on the person than they were the truck, at least from what I understand in the investigation. But there was also a 17-day period between when they went missing and when they actually found the bodies. So my question is, yeah. maybe the blue truck disappeared during that time period in some way. They didn't really know that the blue truck may have been on the scene until, you know, almost like a month later, half a month later. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what they, what the process was with tracking down that blue truck. And we've been trying to track down the blue truck. It's kind of a white whale. <laughs> yeah, through like VIN numbers and trying to figure out like where that blue truck would be today, but we haven't, we haven't had success as of yet. <laughs> yeah. How does the town feel about that? Have they been fearful since no one's ever been caught? <laughs> the town's very fearful of, that's just part of the, I think the murder itself has just been part of the case of why the town's fearful. It's a little unclear of why everyone's still so fearful 40 years later, but no one seems to want to talk still. They're, they're still so scared. Like, you, you heard about Joe Stout. You heard, I think you may have heard in one of the episodes when we talked about Joe Stout and how scared he was, but mm -hmm. he still spoke up. Um, he lived his whole life in fear. You know, he was getting phone calls regularly about being quiet. We talked about the men in the suits that followed him. Um, that we, there's another woman that we know about who is rumored to like never have left town because she's lived in fear her whole life. Not because of the murders, but of whoever's trying to silence her. Um, so for 40 years, she's stayed at home. Um, don't know, you know exactly who's doing the silencing and why, but... Um, that's one of the reasons we would really like to like keep you know get this case closed for everybody. There's so many people that are just living their life in fear. So yeah, that's the interesting part though. It doesn't seem like you touched on it that they're not living their life in fear necessarily that this murderer is still on the loose and mm -hmm. may strike again, but more around fear of or maybe already has talking. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe already has. That's a great question. Yeah. Why did the FBI never get involved? So the FBI, you know, typically has to be invited by local law enforcement to like be a part of a um, murder case. You know, in any case, like has to be, you know, invited by state local law enforcement in any homicide case. But this case is different um, for reasons because you know their bodies were found on local or, or were found on federal property. So land between the lakes was um, deemed, you know, was deemed federal land by John F. Kennedy in 1963. So when he saw this property, he claimed it as federal land. So when the girls' bodies were found, that's where they were found. So initially, the FBI probably should have taken on the case to begin with. So everybody always kind of wonders why they didn't take the case. And, and they can't now? Well, that's kind of what we're... That's, that's our goal yeah. now. That's kind of our next step. And that's kind of what I was about to like jump into. Um, I actually sent a note to the FBI myself asking them about why, if Carla had sent 
um, was scheduled to testify on September 18th to turn in state's evidence. And it's very interesting because I sent in a note for the Freedom of Information Act and just to see if, you know, they would write me back and let me know, you know, if there was anything there. And, you know, to quote my friend Brandon Barnett from the podcast Searching for Ghosts, um, it's what they, you know, it, it wasn't what they said, it's what they didn't say. They wrote back, the FBI has completed its search for records responsive to your request. The material you requested is located in an, in an investigative file, which is exempt from disclosure. And it goes on to list the clauses and the acts. So what that tells us is that there is indeed an open, you know, an open case that either, um, you know, either you know they don't want us to see or it's not you know it's not available for us to have yet so it's there so that's the only part of the FBI that you know they've been involved with do you think the killer has killed other people that's a very good question um, I've actually done my research on this because we've thought about this a lot and actually the answer isn't that easy there's no way of knowing how many killers are out there killing um, or repeat offenders if they've never been caught or never been accused of another crime. However, there are statistics on many murderers um, from prison and they go and kill again. Um, the number is surprisingly high. So now what I did read is that someone that accidentally kills or in fact has remorse for their killings will confess or no longer will able will be able to live with their crimes. But that person that kills with no remorse or no regrets um, they could go about living their life just normally, like kind of just seem like any normal person. So until we're certain of who the killer really is, we have no way of really knowing, in fact, if they've killed any other victims. Um, but it's definitely a great question because that's one thing that we've been so focused on, this particular crime, that we really haven't thought about there being other crimes that have been tied to this. I think I just thought about, it's like, like these, these people in Dover, if they're like living with a killer, I don't think I ever really thought about it, if they killed again or not, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you guys know what happened to the weapon that was used to kill Carla and Vicky? Um, that's actually, I keep saying it's a good question because they're all good questions, but that's a really funny question because we never really thought about the gun until recently and it was about two weeks ago we received an anonymous tip from a gentleman who seemed to think that they had information um, about the weapon and so that information we're actually going to have to hang on to ourselves for now and we can't like publicly put that out there. So we are trying to like, we reach, try to reach out to the authorities um, with, you know, to let them have that information. So. Um, yeah, we'll hang on to that for a bit. <laughs> so we hope that's like something that can be used and that'll be helpful. If that's actually, in fact, true information, it'll be very helpful. Where is everyone that you've discussed to date currently living? Like the girl's brothers, the ex-boyfriends, and all of the investigators involved? Well, to start, their brother Randy, who was due in court on that day, um, that the girls disappeared. He still lives in Tennessee, but unfortunately the brother Roger, who was ta who actually was taken to identify Carla and Vicky's bodies when he was 17, um, he passed away in 2018. Also one of their other younger brothers, Joel, um, has passed away as well. But the rest of the family, including the mom, I know, it's kind of weird. There's, there's interesting stories here. <laughs> um, but their mom, Margie Now, is still living in the area, and she's still, like, looking for answers. I mean, this has obviously mm -hmm. been a traumatic event for her for her life. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's <coughs> definitely interesting. Um, but 
But then another piece of information that is just, we came across as we were researching this, is that as we started to try to put together the family tree, and we realized that Vicka, Vicky and Carla um, had two separate fathers. We started kind of following them. And we realized that Vicky's father, Leland Stout, was 30 year old, was 37 years old when um, he actually was murdered. He was stabbed to death in 1965 by his roommate in Houston. Um, and the roommate told the police, I'm sorry, it's not, it's actually not funny, but um, he, um, that he stabbed Stout because he refused to stop singing and that the singing was keeping him awake. Um, and this was all like this was all according to the Austin American Statesman. So Vicky was <clears throat> only one when he was murdered, and then if you can imagine, was it's murdered then herself. That's brutal. I mean, brutal. Like, what are the can you imagine just the tra- the trauma in that family and what they've gone through for singing? And it's so bizarre. I mean, yeah. you guys mentioned evidence was stolen out of the agent's car. What whatever came of that? Well, was it? Asian Carlton that lost the evidence or yeah well that's all very interesting too so that patrol car um that's a big question everyone wants to know too it's like was so because cars in the 80s like you had to lock trunks right so you had to lock the trunk so everyone wants to know was the trunk jimmied open like if it was stolen out of the trunk of the car was there damage to the car and was um, was the agent reprimanded? Like, what happened? Like, because I mean, this is major evidence from a major crime that was stolen. So, it seems convenient. It seems very convenient that it's gone. And, like, you know, you can't just steal it out of a trunk of an old 80s patrol car. Yeah. yeah. And was anything else stolen? Was just the evidence stolen? Right. That seems like a good right. question, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I thought I'd go back for a second and tell you a little bit more about some of the people. Um, that we're talking about in the case still. I thought I'd tell you a bit about, you know, Randall Riggins, who we had talked about. Um, he is still, like, really nowhere to be found. Um, he's presumably living on the streets and on drugs, and according to his sister Leslie, um, he was so distraught after the girl's death that he could never really turn his life back around. And when we interviewed Leslie, you know, she told us that, you know, at one time he was, you know, sober, but he returned to drugs and narcotics after having knee surgery. And she does feel hopeful that after, you know, that finding answers to what happened to the girls, that, that one day could bring peace to her brother. And another person that, you know, gets brought up in the podcast is the former sheriff, you know, David Hicks. You know, we heard a lot of stories about Mr. Hicks and, you know, um, and, why he, and the way he conducted himself during his time as sheriff and during his time with the task force. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so flattering to either department. However, that being said, he was honored just last week at the local um, Stewart, you know, um, Stewart County Holiday Parade as the honorary Grand Marshal by the, you know, by the Stewart County Chamber of Commerce. But from what we understand, he is not in good health this time, and his half brother um, Frankie Gray is the current sheriff of Stewart County. Yeah. And this is a long answer, but <clears throat> but next we have TBI agent yeah. Jack Charlton, right? You just um, yeah. He, he he just passed away, or he passed away in 2001. I guess it wasn't yeah. just, even though it feels like it is. <laughs> um, agent Charlton was the lead agent on the case from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, and he was close friends with Hicks, and he was the father of Greg Charlton. Um, Greg was the perpetrator that was run off the property of the girls a couple of times just a week before the girls' murder, and he was run off the property by Deputy Albert Byers. And was mentioned in the sec as the second person there at the scene in Tibwam's confession. 
So very interesting. Mm-hmm. Just that kind of connection there. Um, and then so who who is Tim Webb? Tim was Greg's best friend. The pair were around 24 years at the time of the girls' deaths. Both grew up in Dover, and Tim confessed that the two of them were there when the girls were killed at Land Between the Lakes, according to the Potnet News story. And according to other sources, he did not he not only told the story to the Potnet News, but to his family and other friends um, in the area. And if we have heard from friends, Tim couldn't live with the guilt of what had happened, and he committed suicide in oh. 2006. Wow. Yeah. So that's the story of like some of our the characters we've talked about so far. Um, I've got a question. What did the girl's mother do to try to solve this case? Like, how involved was she in everything? So from the very beginning, she she called that evening to report the girls missing. Right. And Sheriff David Hicks, you know, um, told her that, you know, they were, you know, if they had run away, they'll come back. And she had to report them again the next day missing. And again, you know, he told them, uh, they'll come back. And I don't, you know, he said, you know, I'm sure they've just run away. And when they come back, you know, I'm personally going to be the one to kick their butts. Those were like, quote, his mm-hmm. words. Actually, it'll be the final segment of the decade. We just wanted to take a second to say thank you for making Murder at Land Between the Lakes such a huge success this year. At this point, we have reached almost 20 countries and have had over 12.5 thousand listens. Carla and Vicky's story is being heard around the world. So happy holidays to you and your family. We look forward to seeing you in the new year. In 2020, it will be 40 years since we have lost Carla and Vicky. If the girls weren't killed for ransom, rape, or torture, why were they taken? Isn't that the main reason most teen girls are taken? That's only one of the things that we don't have an answer for, right? Like, we don't have a who at all. In Tim Webb's confession, he stated the girls were simply killed because, you know, Greg might have sex with one of them. But is it really all that simple? There seems to be a lot of drug stories surrounding the circumstances as well. And drugs, drug suspicions are clouded around their brother Randy and boyfriend Randall, and their other friends that fa- there are other friends that fall into this category as well. I mean, we haven't even discussed on this podcast, but if you saw on our Facebook page, um, we posted this just recently. There's a picture um, of Carla's handwriting and a hand-drawn book cover. It was even dated just weeks before their murder. So before their murder. So the bigger question is, did the girls know something they shouldn't have, and were they executed to keep quiet? So was it over sex, drugs, or both? And next, we discussed that we didn't believe that the girls were sexually assaulted because when their remains were found, their clothes were intact and their bodies were too decomposed to confirm whether or not we know if they were sexually assaulted. Well, we have recently learned that they, there may have been evidence to prove that this theory is wrong. So they were raped? We have been led to believe by a recent document we received that some sort of sexual assault may have taken place. So we know that it's been 17 days for the girls' bodies to be found. Why did it take so long? 
According to the family, there was never an official search party sent out by the sheriff's department. And if you remember from early on, Sheriff Hicks told Margie Nell that he believed the girls had run away and would eventually return. So he wasn't like too, like really involved in like really getting things going initially. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, though, is that there was presumed sighting of the girls in Nashville, and that could have been another reason why there wasn't an official search or rescue. They really did, I think, at one point were pushing that the girls had possibly run away, and so they weren't necessarily looking for them, you know, in the woods or they weren't looking for bodies. Many other locals have told us that it is their belief that <clears throat> it was handled so poorly because of the girls' social status that because they didn't necessarily live in like an upper scale neighborhood and they were a little bit more on the um, poorer side of town um, that maybe they just didn't take it as seriously as well that the girls possibly ran away so yeah so it was it did take a while and it wasn't a search party that actually found the girls it was just hikers in the woods so it was kind of a little bit of a just a happenstance that they were found and if law enforcement was privy to any information of what actually happened to them and didn't want anyone to find out, then they wouldn't have pushed for a search. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's been 40 years since this happened, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are you guys hoping to achieve by next September? So you're right. It'll be 40 years, September 17th, and that'll be the big... Um, anniversary date. I hate using that word because I always think of anniversary as a celebration. So I don't know what else, what other word to actually use, but I'm hoping by then we can have some kind of, you know, I hope there's an end to a means for the family and for the town of Dover. You know, like we said, you know, I feel like there's so many people being silenced and so many people living in fear. And I, I really hope that, you know, we can do the same, the same round table and have a different kind of discussion you know, by this time next year, and having, you know, a different discussion about um, maybe who did this and what's happening to them. Yeah, no, totally. I know this family, I mean, as we talked about today, has been through so much. They deserve answers. And whoever has done this, if they're still out there today, really, we would love to see them brought to justice. Hopefully before next September. Because that would even be better. Has there been any word of whether the sheriff's office gives any like credence or believe, um, or the TBI believe Tim Webb's confession? Um, so that's I, you know, we kind of talked about that whole Potneck news story, um, and I don't. What we'd like to see is like I think the family would like to see the person who gave that confession to the Potneck news story or gave. Tim Webb's confession to them, um, see a grand jury brought forth, and have that person come forward, the people who wrote the Potnight News story come forward to the grand jury, have them all brought forward, and there's other people who told it to, you know, Tim Webb's family, they think they all know the story, and have everyone just, like, tell that story as they know it, and just try to find some kind of, like, truth to it, see if there is truth to that story. And then I, I just feel like there's enough um, enough there to start knocking on some doors and just start asking the right questions instead of just letting it lie dormant. You know, there was one person, and I, I would never name any names right now, you know, especially with this, but um, when Lainey and I started asking questions, someone said to me, isn't it time we just let the girls rest in peace? And I thought, I, I just don't think I would be comfortable with that, you know? In my town, I don't think I'd want a murderer running around. So, 
I think the girls would rest in peace better knowing someone was locked behind bars. So I don't know. <laughs> totally agree. Anyway, does anyone have any more questions or anything else we can, any more comments about anything? I think you're definitely right about the social status having a lot to do with this because if they were prominent people in their community, mm -hmm. um, I think a lot more people would be coming out and talking about it mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier to sweep things under the carpet when people feel threatened or yeah. intimidated, intimidated mm -hmm. by somebody coming around to their house saying, you know, what happened to them, that could happen to you too. So, yeah, so going into that. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for coming and giving us your thoughts gave us a lot to think about as well. A lot of nice questions and yeah, if you have any other questions, shoot them our way. We can do this again. <laughs> we can do a lot. It was really good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Special Roundtable Edition.